So, welcome to Beyond the Roundabout podcast, episode two. Uh, this is a podcast about the future of startups and tech in the UK with me, Paul Johnston. And me, Alex Hansford. And I am at Paul D. Johnston on Twitter. And I'm at Alex Hansford on Twitter. Uh, today we're talking about serverless architecture. What is it? And uh, is it the future? Um, the role of the CTO in a startup. Uh, and we're going to ponder the death of the high street. So first up, we have uh, serverless architectures. I've written a blog post about this the several. last few days. Yeah, I've written several. I'm kind of quite hot on this, but um, I think it was worth a, a proper conversation to kind of take it a bit further, and, and so that's why we're doing this now. But the strange thing is, people people kind of ask me what a serverless architecture is. You know, I'm a CTO of a startup. We are doing a serverless architecture, and people don't really understand how that works. So I kind of wanted to go through it a little bit. Um, so, okay, so let's go through a bit of history. Mm-hmm. And the history is, you know, we all used to shove boxes into data centers and have to connect via networks and all this kind of stuff. And and then it went from, you know, boxes in data centers to virtual machines on boxes in data centers to instances which were sort of virtual machines on boxes in data centers that you could then programmatically create and then we, we can, you know, so it creates something called compute gives you computing power but effectively someone somewhere else is doing the management of the box for you but you still have to run a linux or a windows server somewhere along the line so that's kind of you know that's where we've got to and then you get things like container technologies as well which so you've lost going, me yeah you, you lost me about about <laughs> half, half a minute ago basically uh, Linux servers went from being uh, running on the actual machine to running in a created bit of the machine right okay and, and you and can have multiple ones of them that's basically what's happened so it's got it's got more and more on a single machine right and that, and that whenever you go to a website you're getting that yeah you're getting okay. you're getting somewhere along the line you're getting a, a, an instance or a server or something right there. So, so when you're talking about serverless, you're you're taking a step beyond that. It doesn't actually mean no servers because you physically can't do it with no servers somewhere. Someone right. somewhere. So has someone to, needs to run the. Someone servers. has to run the servers. Right. But what you're basically doing is advocating someone else to run the servers. Okay. Whoever that is, you know. So, if you have, if people have heard of PaaS. You know, that was a service that you could Mm -hmm. use that stored your data for you. Or if you're using an app and you've got Google Cloud Messaging, that's a serverless environment where you just, you do something and then they manage the cloud messaging for you. Or if if you're using the Play services, that's Mm -hmm. another cloud service. It's serverless serverless service for you. So it's, it's not that there are no servers. It's just that you are... You are one step removed from having to look after them. Right. So, so it's like them. a managed service, a managed service, except that you don't generally have like a person managing your yeah. server. It's a service that just handles it all. Yeah. Someone. And, and you somewhere. don't have to worry about servers. You just you just put things in and put things out. Yeah. Okay. You use it. You are utilizing yeah. this service, and that's it. And and okay. that's the basic idea of it. But you can also create your own service services internally to be able to do some clever things so the 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 main way of thinking about serverless is really you're taking out the idea of maintenance of a server right yeah so instead of having to say 
we're going to start up this service and we're going to do this and, and our startup is going to do X and then we're going to run four servers over in AWS or mm-hmm. 16 instances of compute in Google Cloud mm. um, with load balancers and everything else. You just forget all of the all of that and you're going, we're just building, the, we're just using X, service X, whatever it is. Right. That's all you're doing. So just removing the need for any any maintaining of anything. So you don't need any DevOps then? Because that's, that's essentially what that's, that is. Uh, interestingly, sort of yes and sort of no. If you're not main, it's not in terms of maintenance, yes. But right. actually, you still need to maintain whatever code you're using. You still right, need to maintain a bunch of other... So you still need good processes in place to manage the, the way that you're using the services. But you don't have to worry about things like, is the service up or down? That's somebody okay. else's job. Great. So you've got... So yes and no is the answer right. to that. So it's not... No maintenance then, but it's it, it's less maintenance. As much less maintenance. So uh, one of the things that um, people talk about within the serverless community is, you know, they very much talk about Lambda and AWS Lambda. Right. And if you haven't come across it, AWS Lambda is just a uh, simple service for primarily Node, but also Python and Java to um, create simple responses to events. Um, that's all it is um, but everyone seems to think that that's what serverless is um, but it's not it's actually a not technology specific it's far more about um, far more about creating micro functionality um, rather than anything else so instead of where you have a microservice where the idea is you build the um, you build an API and behind it there's servers and all of these kinds of things um, with uh, a serverless architecture that you build and and you're developing yourself, it's far more about developing single pieces of um, uh, functionality instead of multiple. So a a microservice might have 20 API calls, Mm -hmm. um, but actually each one of those could be a single micro um, function, which would then be part of a serverless architecture. So those 20 API calls could become 20 functions. Okay. So it's stepping away from having something like, um, uh, something like a framework like like, um, Django or Rails or something to to something a little bit beyond that. Yeah. So you end up with, um, you end up with having to think about a lot of things slightly differently. So it actually makes it more difficult to develop, but it ends up more simple at the end of the day. Because with frameworks, you end up with um, uh, things that um, you don't use more than once or twice. So so if you think about a framework, you will often have an ORM in there, you'll often have session management, you'll often have various different bits and pieces that have all been put together into a big thing. Mm-hmm. And this big thing is like a big clump of wool you know you can't really pull it apart you know it's kind of it's rolled into a ball and all of that kind of stuff and you Um, don't you don't get to choose what's in that ball either you just kind of you're given this and you just say yeah that that does me I'll, 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 i'll use that yeah and you're kind of hopeful that people know what they're doing but sometimes you'll find that they don't and sometimes you'll find it's not as good as it could be and other frameworks will have better bits that mm. you can pull in and put elsewhere so the the, the disadvantage of those is you, you've got to trust the people around you who are mm. putting these things together to put in 
the right bits for the framework. Whereas when you go down towards a serverless idea and down towards micro functionality, you actually have to think about getting rid of the bloat bits. Right. So you have to think about actually, I've got this one thing. It this functionality is this event is meant to do this. Right. And it just does that. It doesn't do. You don't need your session management in your ORM necessarily, and you just need mm-hmm. it to do the one thing. And there are certain things like shared databases that you need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. And you still need to know how to code within those scenarios, but actually you're quite a long way from having to know a framework before you can develop, because you can just develop each bit of functionality completely separately. So you could have a hundred different functions written by a hundred different people. Mm. You know, you could build very, very rapidly on that basis. So it's 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 a different way of thinking, and it takes a little bit more thought around it. But you, you have those kinds of elements in there that make it really interesting. So so is um, so it, it's not language specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but what language do you use, or is is it does that depend on whichever um, provider you use? You know, whatever the services, they they will say, oh, it needs to be in Go or whatever. Yeah, so the different services, because what they're doing is basically creating micro instances underneath it that have compute of their own, and they're doing it for you, so you don't have to think about it. You have right. to use their, you have to use the right technologies. So, okay. AWS Lambda, I think I've said already, is um, Node JS mm-hmm. and Python and Java. Although okay. people shy away from Java, actually, even though you can, mm. um, people prefer Node. Right. And actually, most of the other services and competitors to Lambda are focusing on Node as probably being the primary solution at present because it's event-driven. Right. So the idea of it is very much it fits in with the whole idea of an event mm-hmm. and then response. So you're not having to change the way you code for it. Um, okay. So if you can code for Node in one scenario, you're probably going to be able to code for Node in a serverless mm. uh, micro-functionality environment. So it, it's kind of the best way of doing it. But AWS uses primarily Node, mm-hmm. actually. Um, most people use Node. But um, other functions, uh, other services such as um, uh, OpenWhisk and Google Cloud functions um, and other other services like that have mm-hmm. different technologies that you can use. But, uh, you know, as an advice thing, pick one technology. Just pick pick one language, yeah, and just use that. Don't complicate it by having seventeen different languages. But you could. There's nothing to actually stop you doing that. So it could be a horses for courses thing at that point. So does creating separate um, services to just deal with a single function? Mm-hmm. Um, so does that make simpler code? And because if you're going to pick a language mm-hmm. and then later on it changes, yep. obviously the, the main problem with that is if you deal with an existing um, architecture, an mm-hmm. existing application, it, it becomes a spaghetti, bowl of spaghetti. It becomes really difficult to pull anything out of it. Um, so does this make it easier to then, you know, if, if something is, is more appropriate later on, change that? Yeah, it, it means that um, because each thing is separate from mm-hmm. each other, then actually, and well, it depends how you build it. There have been some really bad ways of building it. But it, because each microfunction is separate from every other microfunction, then you can change only one aspect of it at any one time. So you could take, you might have your microservices or you might mm-hmm. have an API that you've developed or a whole bunch of things over here. And actually, you want to change one bit of it. 
So you can just take that one bit, that one call, that one uh, routing function and just route it into a, into a micro function like this and you could change it over time. Um, does it make it does it make it easier to um, to code around that? Yeah, I think it probably does, but it doesn't necessarily make it easier to code each individual thing. Right. Because each individual thing then needs thinking about separately. But then you have tests for each individual thing that then develop mm. its own micro environment that you then have to think about as, on its own. But as soon as you built that. It, it just runs and you have to think an awful lot less and because you haven't got the maintenance associated with the server or the framework mm. it's a lot quicker and easier to update and upgrade each single one because you haven't got the security concerns and I guess it's just scalable as standard because you don't have to consider that yeah it just it just it just if you throw throw a hundred thousand people with it it should still work yeah so the the purpose of using these um, these services mm -hmm. is that you they worry about scaling mm. you don't so if you build a service on top of all of these if you build an app on top of all of these other services you end up with auto scaling by default you don't even have to think about load balances and uh, auto scaling environments with things like Heroku and um, uh, Elastic Beanstalk and all of those kinds of things you don't need to think about having to code within that scenario and you don't have to think about a docker instance that you mm -hmm. can scale and you don't it just removes the need for for all of those and and so it that's that gives you a massive advantage over compute uh in the you know a compute instance or, uh, in either google or um or in aws or any other cloud scenario it just it just steps away from needing to worry about all of those elements okay so it, it, it's how would you move to it? You would, you would. So if you were thinking about starting to do something with with this, I think it's actually a very easy way of starting, which is take a simple function that you know is isn't working very well on on your server, and just route it into uh, into an AWS Lambda function. Probably the easiest way of doing it because that's the most mature, and just rewrite it as a Lambda function, okay. and just see if it if it runs. Run some tests on the specific function and. Voila, you should have a very simple service. And you can do that over time or you can move a bunch of them at once. Uh, rather than perhaps going, we're going to b b build an API yeah. that does all of these things, mm -hmm. just start with a single function mm -hmm. and, and, and get that working. And then you can just keep iterating with yeah. that single function without having to say, ta-da, we have this new yes. API. -ness. We, we just have deal with each function individually. Yeah. And if you if you put in um, API gateway, for example, as just another example, but it's what we've used in front of your Lambda functions. You can even start to use multiple different services and servers and bring things into a single um, unified backend over time. So, it, you know, you can, you can, you can migrate over time. You don't need to jump straight into it. It's not like how we used to have, here's another, here's one server, here's another server, this is better than that one, mm -hmm. so therefore we're all going to move over there. So it, it just makes it easier to think about the bits of your application that need to change because they're not very good over here. Just move that one thing. You can do it very easily. Okay. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's actually very easy and I think, you know, I'm not going to go back to using frameworks in the same way. I'm sure there will be serverless frameworks coming out 
and uh, I'm, I'm going to watch that space quite carefully because there's, there's one out there but it's not that good in my opinion yet mm. could get very interesting but it's not quite mature enough for me but I think we'll be I think it would be quite an interesting space to watch and I think it is the future of how we're going to do servers so does it is it cheaper or is that a separate conversation I think if you look at the uh, cost of development I think probably at the moment it's a bit higher right for each individual function but if you then look at the cost of maintaining servers mm -hmm. security updates on frameworks on open source tools that you've brought in uh, on um, having to provide updates for various different things that you never even realized you needed to over time uh, and just the cost of having to run actual servers in terms of knowing what they are and find, hiring someone who knows those things you just need a single developer mm. you know you, you're removing people you're removing time you're removing updates just the ROI seems to make a lot of sense to me it's not necessarily going to dramatically change your tech cost but it might well change your need for people right fair enough that's good so yeah I, I think it's the best thing that's happened to tech in a long time but you would say that I know I would <laughs> <laughs> So what is a CTO, Paul? And, <laughs> and why do I, as a startup, need one? Mm -hmm. uh, and what makes them different from other roles? So uh, CTO um, means Chief Technology Officer. It's um, an Americanism more than anything else. It's basically the head of technology within, a, within an organisation. So the primary person who does technology in the organisation. Um, they're usually the, the board strategist type person who knows something about technology. So they, they've got a bit of a view on the business and a bit of a view on the technology and they sit across both those fences most of the time. So that's kind of what the CTO role should be um, so, along those kinds of so lines. So what's their background and yeah where where do they come from in 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 terms of because because traditionally these these things come from someone who's done x so someone who's been a developer or someone who's done you know, mm -hmm. something so what where do where do they normally come from and what what do people ask for um so most of the time uh, ctos spring from the senior development team from somewhere along that line, uh, they will be. Uh, they will have some experience of developing in a language. They will have. Um, they will have programmed somewhere along the line, so they will know something about computers and what they're useful for. And you would hope that most CTOs, although not all, um, would have some experience behind them. Actually, some real. Um, uh, experience of actual coding in the real world rather than just um, knowledge of or um, management only which is I think uh, can happen quite a lot within the tech world um, but really they, they are the yeah stop there I'm trying to think of the next bit to run. but anyway I'll stop there so um <coughs> So what do they do? What kind of decisions do the CTO, does the CTO get involved in? 
So the CTO, the CTO is um, quite a pivotal role within the business. Um, usually, what will happen is that the uh, the board or the or the founders or whoever is involved with the product strategy, that those kinds of people will say, "This is the direction we're going. This is what we want to do as a business," and that will be a, a business decision to go in a specific direction, whatever that is. We're making lots of widgets, or mm-hmm. we're going to find five hundred thousand people in Russia who want to download our app, that kind of thing. Um, and the, it's it's basically the uh, the technical um, CTO person is going to be the one who says right that's the business that's where the business wants to go i'm going to create this technology and this kind of strategy for getting there so they'll take an idea and they'll basically create the technical roadmap to get there so they'll choose the technology they'll um pick the uh the um the kind of development team that they want and the kind of development environment that they want to put in depending on what kind of technology so things like agile or they'll or they'll you know stick pair programming in there or they if they have no clue what they're doing they'll do waterfall um, <clears throat> and and, and you know it, it's so it's a project management role as well as a technical role so do they um, so I'm assuming they choose the stack they mm-hmm. they talk about the development processes yes um, so so do you find that um, startups that have founders that have a tech tech um, background mm-hmm. um, do you find that they need CTOs sooner or, or, or do they need them at different a different point in their growth so when you have a technical person in there one of the, there are two there are two problems that need to be solved number one um, is the tech right for the business mm-hmm. um, is the first just take that first um, and and that's almost the hardest one to do. Uh, and basically, the second one is: does the tech work? Right. Does the tech do what it's supposed to do? Um, and they're two different things. And mm-hmm. understanding which one is right and the right approach is actually about pragmatism. It's about stepping away and going. Actually, we could do it this way, but this is better because of the business mm-hmm. decision. Or we could do it this way, but actually this technology gets us 95% of the way there, so that's a better choice, mm-hmm. uh, rather than having to, or, or save us time. So um, when you're talking about uh, founders and mm-hmm. um, everything else, if they're an experienced founder, um, so if they're an experienced technologist who's maybe done a number of startups or at least been involved with projects on tight budgets, so not necessarily enterprise. It's one of those, mm-hmm. I find enterprise people generally are not good at startups. That's just, uh, not to say there aren't any out there, but general rule, mm-hmm. if, you do, if you've never had to worry about budgets and, and costs and overruns at, at a small scale, then the likelihood is you're probably going to struggle to identify where you need to go and what you need to do with the smaller budgets and the smaller scales. Um, so when with the with the startup world, you've got this um, tension between understanding that the, getting the technology out there and making sure it does what the business wants, mm. and that's that's the hardest part of it. Mm. Not sure I answered that question properly. Actually, what did I not say? Well, I think um, <laughs> start just gap. Yeah, I think. Um, what I really what I, what I was trying to think of was um, 
So, so initial tech founders might build code that works up to a point, mm-hmm. and then as as a startup uh, grows, um, there's a need for um, a different approach, yeah. and um, the just passing it to a developer and saying, okay, well, make this scale, yeah. um, doesn't really work, and so yeah. that was kind of what I was looking for. Was you know those that's the point where you get a CTO in and yeah. say. Okay, I'm now giving the reins to you mm-hmm. to make this scale and make this um, uh, platform have value. Yeah. Um, while I, as a founder, go and do the, some of the larger business um, elements. So when so what you have with this with startups as they grow is you end up with different role names and different things that that mean different things in different places, but. Um, so the CTO generally becomes a more strategic role. Right. So as you grow, as you need to do things, so maybe you've gone from having you know a team of one to two to three to five, say, as soon as you start getting to needing a uh, an understanding of developing a team to a decent size of maybe 10, 20, 30, you've got to be a manager at that point. You've got to start managing people. You've got to start managing um, roles and responsibilities, separating out different tasks into different groups and then managing those kind of things. So it, you you can't, unless you've got some experience of that, you can, you can guess and you can flounder a little bit and some people can make the transition, but it's a difficult one. Usually you need to have been in that scenario, which is why it's good to bring in a CTO at that point. So you need to have had some experience of running a wider team and interacting with other departments so that you can know what to do also hiring and firing and managing people is not everybody's cup of tea so you may end up with um you know you may end up finding that your founding techie may step into the engineering team and step down from being uh, the strategic role, or even the v, what's called the VP of engineering, it's a terrible term mm-hmm. because it it means something in the states. It means a lot less here, but it mean it works in the startup world because we know roughly what it means, which is basically the person in charge of the tech, right? As opposed to the person in charge of you know, so they manage the team and they manage the strategy and the the, the you know how who's going to do what and when, mm-hmm. and then you've got your CTO who's over here who works alongside the VP of engineering but is in charge of them as well mm-hmm. and the CTO is the one who sits at the board and says right where do we want to go I think we can achieve these kinds of things with the technology and that's and we can help the, the business move forwards in this way mm-hmm. so the 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 specialism changes right so your founding CTO is is very different to your uh, series A Series B CTO say so you you, Mm -hmm. once you grow to those sites and and there are cases where you can found and transition and if you have good support and good mentoring there's nothing to stop you being able to transition because you just hire a good VP of engineering underneath you Mm -hmm. and you hire good people and there are enough of them out there but it's it's not a it's not a straightforward thing to do and it doesn't fit everybody Mm -hmm. but you know the, the role name of CTO is the same whether the Startup has got three people or two people and 30 to 500 people. Mm. Um, the roles and responsibilities are roughly the same. It's just the, the number of people you're managing is different. Okay. I guess the question is, you know, what's the value of, of having a good CTO? When we talk, So we talked about growth. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we talked about management mm-hmm. and making some of the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that equate to you know, business and, and yeah. benefit? So with startups, the um, problem is that if you don't have a good CTO at the start, you're actually setting yourself up for a bunch of problems. It's not to say you won't succeed, but finding a good CTO isn't, let's go and find the first techie that can deliver a piece of technology. It doesn't work that way. Um, Sometimes finding a good CTO is actually more about uh, recognising the slightly longer term skill set. They may not be as good a actual techie as others so some of the best CTOs are not that great at technology they might be more managery um, with some skills in technology but because they're more pragmatic and aware of their skill set they can actually be very aware of the right approaches and usually a good CTO will actually go slower with their technology development not in terms of coding slower but Mm -hmm. will um, hold back on on adding features until they're certain of understanding a whole bunch of stuff around the business Um, and so you you need that that thinking but um, yeah the the biggest mistake you can make is just picking the first person who you like and um, and who can do technology Mm. especially if they know PHP don't even get me started on that Um, it's it's it is difficult to find a good CTO. It really is hard. And I think, you, you know, the it's the most important person within a technical startup. I don't care what anyone says. The, the operations person and the sales person and the, and the CEO, you can pretty much switch those people out. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are numbers of people who, are, who exist who can do those roles. There aren't that many people who are capable of doing a, a good job as a CTO. And there are even fewer who are good at doing a great job as a CTO. And it's difficult. And I, and I, I know I'm bigging myself up here. <laughs> I, I, I have been surprised at how good some of the CTOs I've met actually are. Mm. Uh, and how inadequate I feel, certainly. But... Um, you know, I've learned an awful lot from them in terms of actually it's not necessarily about the technical side of things. It's about approach and patience and pragmatism. And that's what makes a good CTO, I think. Mm. Maybe. Okay, and last we have a rant um, <laughs> about the death of the high street uh, and whether we are um, whether that's going to happen soon. And um, the reason I'm, I wanted to talk about this, um, and this is my slot, as you can probably tell, um, but the reason I wanted to talk about this is because um, there was lots of discussions about um, recessions today and. Mm-hmm. We've just had a budget and it made me realize that more and more um, consumers are creating the death of the high street mm-hmm. as much as businesses are. Yep. Um, and so to give you some stats, um, one in six high street units um, are currently empty in the UK. Um, sales have pretty much flatlined. Mm-hmm. Um, or declined. There's been some small growth, 
Um, but one of the things that people forget is that more, peop more people are moving into the UK and the population is naturally growing at any time anyway. So in practice, even doing nothing will result in more sales mm -hmm. so long as nothing else changes. Mm -hmm. So in reality, things aren't improving. They're just not getting worse at a really fast rate. But they're, they're, they're not really, there's no real movement on that um, in a positive direction. And, and the, the thing that uh, surprised me was I wondered whether people are creating this um, cycle of uh, dying uh, high street retailers mm -hmm. um, and whether that's anything we can do, whether that's yeah. something we can do about it. So, uh, I think you know we have to kind of do a quick nod towards um, the rise of logistics firms and mm. uh, the um, the technologies in terms of delivery and uh, you know what 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 impact has that had on on well it's on been the high huge street. because the high street was always the place you went for something that you needed there and then or something you were going to need that weekend. Mm -hmm. um, it was never. Uh, the place that you needed something for next week. Mm -hmm. It was always the thing you wanted straight away. Um, and the, the thing that's, that's changed is it's a lot easier to order things online nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, Amazon pioneered this. They have um, Prime. They have their um, logistics uh, warehouses everywhere, distribution centers everywhere. And they've um, got savvy consumers to the point where they can go into the high street, into a high street retailer, uh, they can look at the prices and they can look at the, 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 the range that's available to them and then they can walk out, go to Amazon on their phone or, or another um, provider and, and just say, so I'll have that for, for this evening or I'll have that for tomorrow morning and that's quick enough for me. And, yeah. and, and, and you don't have a, to take it home. You don't have to even consider about it. Someone else brings it to your house. Yeah. It's and, lovely. And, and people, are, you know, <laughs> and, and the thing is, if you compare prices online with the high street, you could easily save five or ten pounds on, on certain items, probably a lot more on even more expensive items. Yeah. And, and so when there's that, that difference in price, um, it, it's hard for the consumer to say, oh, well, so I'll just pay that because it's right here. If they're not really compelled to buy yeah. at that moment. Um, and, and the thing is, that's that, you know, Amazon's not the only one. So we've also got um, Argos have started doing this as yeah. well. Um, Argos is probably the best um, uh, alternative to Amazon in that it has a really broad range mm -hmm. of, um, uh, of items uh, and stock. Um, but even specific uh, verticals have looked at things. So, for example, uh, clothing. Uh, yep. You can see uh, in clothing that they've got next day delivery sus now. So mm -hmm. you can go into next, order by nine, get it in the morning the following day. Um, and M&S are doing the same and, and other uh, retailers are doing the same. And, and so that means they can store less stock. In, 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 um, they don't have to have all of the... Um, uh, sizes in stock particularly if they know what's the popular sizes already someone comes along that's a different size they can see it and go oh, I want that but it's not available in my size 
and they can order it for the following day. And what that got me um, interested in is, is, is whether we're actually creating this cycle ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think we are um, because in practice what happens is that because uh, retailers don't need to hold as much stock, mm-hmm. they don't need um, to, to have uh, such big uh, stock rooms mm-hmm. um, upstairs or anything like that, so they can reduce their costs. Mm-hmm. Um, the sizes of stores can get smaller. Mm-hmm. And of course, that means that empty there space. Are more, there's more empty space. Um, larger units are, are, are um, harder to fill. Increasingly um, redundant. And, and yeah, increasingly redundant is probably the right word because they really are um, becoming something that is, is no longer needed. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so like a, a department store, for example, is a, is a classic example that could die much quicker than, than other more targeted um, retailers because it's so, yeah. you know, it's so, oh, we'll be everything. And, and then they when don't... the department store, I mean, it's an interesting one. It just, I was thinking about department stores and thinking that they might be the ones that survived because actually the, it's interesting because they are very good at taking bigger ticket items and making you really want bigger ticket items and mm. getting people in just to browse. And you go there because you want to pay more money and get quality. And so if you, if you kind of take that approach, you might end up with still being able to have that that scale and scope might not be as big but you know you you are still talking on that level whereas i think that where where i think this really does make a difference is the um uh, and i'm i'm slightly disagreeing but only slightly disagreeing is with the the more um high street retailer okay so you're next so and your you know your fashion outlets that you know i'm just thinking off the top you know your uh, who are they nowadays river island and yeah. super dry maybe mm-hmm. you know all of the different brands mm-hmm. you know where it's a fashion brand you go in and and you can you can buy you're gonna you want to be sold a, a dream rather than sold clothes and i think you know it's that whole thing of actually shopping needs to become more about entertainment for those stores, whereas I think with you're talking about the the, the John Lewis's and the Debenhams mm-hmm. of this world, mm-hmm. you know that you're still going to want a really nice bed, um, as opposed to going to IKEA and getting the cheapest one off the shelf. So, so is it the? So you're right. It's those middle road ones that mm-hmm. are the problem. So, the uh, department stores could could aim, aim to be a destination, mm-hmm. um, and. The yeah, there'll always be the smaller specialists yeah. that will go increasingly online anyway. So yes. that's fine. Um, and it's the it's the high street um, retailers that sit in this awkward part of um, having to compete on price. Yeah. But also, you know, being pushed pushed in certain directions. Yeah. So maybe it is a price competition thing. Maybe the the high street is actually intrinsically linked to price competition. And until we can, unless we can unlink it, unless we can break that that cycle of continual um, pushing down of prices, maybe there's a way of saying actually entertainment or or destination is more to do with how we save the high street, how we, you know, is the high street going to die? Maybe the high street won't be the high street. Maybe it'll be the entertainment street. So is it is it partly because people aren't visiting the high street anymore? Because previously you, you would work around the high street. Mm-hmm. 
and 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 you would work in a um, in a job that was based in town. Yeah. So it was always easy to get the things that you needed from there. Mm-hmm. So now we've got um, a lot more out of town malls. We've yeah. got um, large out of town supermarkets. Yeah. Um, and and also um, many businesses are moving to um, uh, sort of specialist mm-hmm. um, you know, premises, um, business parks, uh, and there aren't that many people who are working in in the, the town centre anymore. Um, is that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think you know if you look at the business parks that get created, you you, uh, you have. Um, you know what they what they look at is here's some offices and then we'll stick in a cafe mm. and we'll make sure the cafe's really cool got a funny name and uh, includes lemons somewhere on the menu um you know it, it, it's one of those situations where um people think that that's all you need mm-hmm. you know it's just it's just a you need to get some food and you need a place to have a meeting right whereas the the high street of old was where everybody worked because everyone worked in the shops or they worked in the in the local factory and they were all within walking distance of each other because no one had a car um and so if it was it was a community place and it was actually it was a destination by virtue of being where everyone had to go to get to get work so right. so you've got all of those elements you know, you're pulling people in, but now we've kind of distributed everybody um, that actually we've forgotten that actually it was about community. So maybe it is more of a kind of, um, maybe we just need to think about, um, you know, the the layout of, um, you know, maybe bringing people back into the mm-hmm. centres by building more, you know, taking over and putting offices in, in and allowing some of these spaces that are empty to be used for offices and, co-working spaces which i think is probably the best way of doing it mm. um or even art spaces you know anything that's that's going to generate a sense of community mm-hmm. uh, um and bring people um not to shop but to talk and to be together that probably makes more sense in terms of how you know the high street could survive these kinds of things but it's it's a bit of a different one i don't know it's um <coughs> yeah it goes beyond it goes beyond the things that we've we've looked at um, with business before, which is about you know how let's get more footfall. Mm. It goes way beyond that. It's not about footfall. It's not about um, uh, sales necessarily. It's about it's about making making it a place you want to be. Mm. Actually, I want to be in the city centre. I don't want to go to the city centre. And maybe I don't know how you do that, but it's not it's not about the money anymore. So will it? stop us from ordering from Amazon as much? I think if uh, the convenience of um, ordering into my community mm-hmm. was available to me and if that ordering into my community supported the community I think in some way then I think that could be a really interesting concept. I might pay more for that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but until until someone recognises, I don't know. I'm I'm just making this up. Actually, I just haven't thought about this. But actually, until someone recognises the the importance of community within that context, I think I would feel, you know, I'm going to go with price most mm. of the time because price generally means more convenient now. Mm. There, yeah, Amazon has a 
a war on several fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's also it's not just the price, but price is the main lever convenience that people use. Um, and convenience is another one. Um, interestingly, tax may be another one because um, it's it's surprising how high a proportion of the Amazon goods are not um, paying VAT, mm-hmm. and and so that's a really in interesting and surprising thing so next time you order from amazon um if you order from a marketplace seller which you probably will even if it's with prime you won't realize that um but if you've ordered through a marketplace seller just ask for a vat receipt and see what answer you get and there's a there's a point where that's going to stop being available um and and hopefully that will normalize some of the prices because it yep. always used to be a case of um, you buy something from abroad and it might be a bit cheaper or you buy something online you might be a bit cheaper um, but but if they all pay the same amount of tax I think you'll find things things may yep. be a lot more even than you realize so. yeah great interesting yeah, so is the high street gonna die no but I, I think it's I think it's gonna have to change Mm-hmm. And it's going to have to change because I don't think people want to visit the old high street. Yeah. And and the, the I think the problem is that we haven't got any real compelling reasons to go back to the high yeah. street yet. Um, and that's what we need to work on. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little frustrating that no one seems to be leading on this in in my in my eyes. Yeah. It's just. Um, it's been left to independents and shop own, you know, small shop owners and small communities, which is lovely. But in practice, you can't change the whole of the UK by independent things. You, you need is something wider. Um, we just need to work out what it is. <laughs> anyway, Definitely. it's interesting. Excellent. Okay, that's it. So, next time on Beyond the Roundabout, hopefully we'll be talking about... Drones! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got to say it in a dramatic voice, otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't have the same power. Absolutely. Um, so, we'll be talking about drones, playing with drones, uh, and, uh, yeah, what the future of drones might, might bring. So, that could be interesting. Um, so thanks for listening. The show notes, you'll find them at beyondtheroundabout.com. Um, we'll put links to um, the Medium articles and, and some relevant links in there. Um, so, yeah, and thanks for, um, thanks for listening. Uh, and do remember to like us on SoundCloud and tweet to us. I'm at Paul D. Johnston. Uh, and I'm at Alex Hansford. Great. Brilliant. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Bye.
no outtakes. <coughs> As a quick example, we've uh, we're working with two websites at the moment. Doorbells, doorbells. That's a lovely noise. Shall I turn this off or leave it? Just turn it off.